The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Well, hey, good morning, church. If we haven't met, my name is Craig Ruskamp, and I'm a non-staff elder here, which the main thing that means this morning is that in two weeks, when Todd comes back, you don't have to listen to me preach anymore, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. good or bad, who knows? Uh, some of you know this already about me, but I was, I was raised in a Catholic family, and we were a very devout and faithful Catholic, Catholic family, and, and my parents and family, other family members actually are still really faithful and devout. And for us as kids, that meant we never missed going to church on Sunday. And I mean never uh, in a literal sense here. I mean that when we went on fishing trips, we rolled out of our tents, hadn't changed our clothes for a week, we were stinky and smelly, we drove to the nearest town, found the local church, sat in the back pew of that church so that we would never miss going to church, right? And as a kid, I loved this. I, I ate this up. I was all in on this plan uh, to never miss going to church. And then uh, when I was in eighth grade, one winter, there was a big snowstorm in Lincoln. This happened Saturday into Saturday night, a little bit into Sunday morning. So we woke up to feet, feet of snow, if I'm remembering correctly. I'm, I'm probably exaggerating. But there's a lot of snow on the ground. And, and for context, this is before cell phones and Wi-Fi, right? So we're talking about dial-up internet and a phone that's plugged into a wall. So you can't check Facebook or Twitter to see what's going on with church. So my parents called the rectory um, where the priest was at, and no one answered the phone. So they thought that that meant the priest was up at the church building, right, getting ready to have Mass. So we jumped in the car, started driving. Um, We actually lived, for those who are familiar with Lincoln, we lived on 14th and Superior, So we're driving up Superior Street towards the Highlands, you go over the interstate, you go over the First Street Bridge, and you turn left to go to Highlands Boulevard. And we went to make that left-hand turn, and it was obvious to everyone in the car that the street had not been cleared. No one had driven that way yet that morning, and we were not going to be the first people to do that. So the folks who never missed church turned around, went back home. And, and I'm sure my mom called the priest and we got a special dispensation uh, for missing Mass this morning, so, so we're all fine in that sense. But, but the reason this memory sticks out to me is because when I woke up that morning and looked out the window, I thought, there's no way we're going this morning. In fact, I took my winter coat and put it over my pajamas. I wore glasses at the time, didn't change into contacts, did nothing to get ready for going to church because I was so certain we were not going to make it. And here's the thing. I remember this so well because for me, this is the first time I disagreed with my parents about church, right? We, for the first time, had conflict about our church attendance, right? And we've all had this experience in some way. Maybe it wasn't church attendance, but we've all had the experience of conflict 
of disunity, right? And Psalm 133 this morning wants us to ask that question of ourselves. It wants us to ask, what causes you to not be in unity with the church? Or you could put it this way, what keeps you from being in harmony with God's people? Now, the last two weeks in Psalm 131 and 132, we kind of got a, a peek behind the curtain into David's life, right? He bared his soul in 131, talking about how God calmed and quieted him, right? And then in Psalm 132, we get this picture of the parallel relationships of the covenant, right? David spoke of his covenant, and then God told David what covenant he was going to hold to him. And this morning, in 100, in Psalm 33, a psalm authored by David, he turns from that inward perspective to an outward perspective, right? Or maybe, maybe a better way is to see that he turns from his vertical relationship with God that he's been talking about in Psalm 131 and 132, and he goes horizontal, right, to his brothers and sisters in the kingdom he rules. So as we near the end of the psalm of ascents, as Israel, who's gathered, turns to go home, right, as they prepare to leave this place, Jerusalem, where they've come to worship God and be spread out, Across the kingdom of Israel, they are left with this piece of wisdom. It's verse 1. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Now this, this verse actually seems pretty straightforward to me. It starts with the word behold. That is, look. Are you seeing this? Right? Look around you, Israelites. Do you see that it is good and pleasant when we dwell in unity. Do you understand that God desires this for us? The people of Israel, as they are gathered, are being told to look around and see the unity among them. Right? They are God's people worshiping together. They have this in common. They are that community dwelling together. And and not just living together, but enjoying the blessings of that unity. And so the people of Israel, even when they left Jerusalem, were in a set-apart kingdom, right? They took all that time to chase everyone else out of their land. So when they went home, their neighbors were still those people of Israel, those brothers and sisters that they dwelled among in unity, right? This land was given to them by God so that they could be surrounded by the same people who worshipped the same God. They lived in that day to day. It's a beautiful design, designed to be created to mirror the relationship of the Trinity, right? We think of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit living together in humanity. We are designed like that, to live together to dwell together and not, not try to go it alone, right? To look, to behold and see that it is good and pleasant as we live together. We're called to live in harmony and peace and solidarity. There was this podcast I was listening to as I was getting ready to preach this last week, and, and they were talking about 
uh, just the connectedness, this, this way we're created to live together. And they said that research shows that people who live the longest and are the happiest, that the number one correlation to that is it's people who have deep and meaningful relationships, right? This is how we're designed to live. And here's the thing. Some of you are thinking, oh, Pastor Craig was listening to a church podcast or a pastor's podcast. I wasn't. That's a quote from Ben Bergeron, who probably no one knows because he's one of the top CrossFit coaches in the world. And if you don't know what CrossFit is, it's like, it's exercising, right? So this, this guy, this guy is an expert on exercising, right? He's trained world champion exercisers, which just sounds weird when you think about it, right? But even him, even he in his research, even though he may not see that it's God's design for us to live in community, he does see that we are made this way, right? He catches that piece of it. He has stumbled upon the wisdom of Psalm 133, that God has designed us to dwell together. Now, God's desire isn't just for the people of Israel to dwell together. God's desire is for us to dwell together, right? We want to dwell among each other and live in unity too. And we don't have the same luxury that the Israelites have of constantly being surrounded by fellow Christians, but our lives should reflect a desire to dwell with each other. And, and for us, hopefully that means more than just a Sunday gathering, right, or a weekly uh, gospel community. It, it means living life on life. It means inviting other people into your day-to-day. And, and look, we all know that that's hard. The community doesn't come easy for us all the time. But we have to see that we are designed for relationships. And here in Psalm 133, God tells us it is good and pleasant to live that way. You don't have to take my word for that, right? You can see that here. It is God's word. As we move to verses 2 and 3, we're going to be met with some similes. And I don't want to just, like, side note over here about similes and metaphors. They've been throughout the entire Psalm of Ascents, right? It's basically 15 verses of similes and metaphors. I challenge you, if you haven't seen it, if we haven't done a good job of of putting that in front of you, as you go back in your own time reading those psalms, like, look for those. And I've underlined all the similes and metaphors in the Psalm of Ascents as we've been going through the series because it's there. So this morning, we're going to take those two similes, because really they're, they're like the bulk of this passage, right? It says, uh, yeah, unity, sorry, unity is like the precious oil on the head. That's the first simile. Unity is like the dew on Hermon. There's your second one, oil and dew. Two different substances Two different pictures that are going to point us to the same conclusion about unity. See, God's design is to experience his blessing of living in unity with each other. And this blessing of unity and life forevermore comes from God. 
It comes from above and is given to us. It is poured out on us. That's the picture we're going to see this morning as we look at these, these two similes, that God's blessing is poured on us, right? So let's look at the first one. It starts in verse 2. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. The beginning of the summer, the second, I learned I was going to be preaching Psalm 133 with this verse. I immediately stopped trimming my beard. (laughs) Right? I was like, I need to embrace being part of the imagery of the psalm, and I'm, I'm not going to pour oil on my head or my beard this morning, because that's just a bit too much for me, but for my wife Anne, today's a great day because I'm going to go home and finally trim my beard and um, not be a mess, so yeah, but this picture of precious oil being poured on Aaron's head and the oil running down his beard and onto his collar, it's from the book of Exodus, right? And we have to see that this anointing or this, this pouring of the oil, it's, it's not done in a vacuum. There's a bigger picture in the book of Exodus and what's going on here. So I want to t- take a minute to, to kind of paint that picture of us for us of what's going on, right? These are, these are instructions uh, that Moses is receiving from God. And the instructions actually start with the building of the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle and the altar of sacrifice, and, and a court of the tabernacle. And they're all they're instructions for all the pieces that go along with the Ark of the Covenant, right? The mercy seat, the table for the bread, the lampstands, the utensils, the basin, right? These are instructions for building the place that God would use to dwell among the people. And that's also where they would offer sacrifices uh, to him and sacrifices for their sin, So that's one piece of what's going on here. And then more specifically to our context, uh, there's instructions for the priest's garments, for what Aaron's going to wear. These garments are to be made for glory and beauty to consecrate Aaron for the priesthood. And Aaron and his sons are to wear them when they perform the priestly duties. Right? And these garments include a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. Now, the ephod is to be made of gold and blue and purple scarlet yarns and of the fine twined linen skillfully worked. There are two onk stones engraved with the names of the son of Israel, and these stones are enclosed with gold filigree and set on the shoulders of the ephod in remembrance of the sons of Israel. And then there's a breastpiece. It's the breastpiece of judgment. It's again made with gold and blue, purple scarlet yarns. And on it, there are four rows of precious jewels, one for each tribe of Israel set into that breaststone. Then there's a robe made of blue with golden bells and pomegranates along the hem so that Aaron is heard wherever he goes wearing that. There's also a plate of pure gold, and it's engraved with the words, holy to the Lord, and Aaron wears that on his forehead. Right? And, and we don't leave out Aaron's sons. There's coats and capes and sashes and linen undergarments for them. So there's all these garments in there to be worn 
when Aaron and his sons go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place. Right? And then they get all these on. There's this whole ceremony of of putting them on and there's uh, sin offerings and wave offerings and all this stuff. And then here's the part we're waiting for. They have all this beautiful clothes on, these garments. And God instructs Moses uh, to consecrate Aaron as he's wearing all these, to pour oil on him. And it's not just any oil, though, right? God gives a special recipe for this oil in Exodus 30. And I want to actually read uh, that, those instructions from Exodus 30 for us this morning. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its utensils and the lampstands and its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people." So this is the oil used to consecrate the tent and the ark and all of the pieces that we talked about that go along with that. It's also used to consecrate Aaron and his sons. And it says over and over in this passage, everything that this oil touches will become holy. That means it will belong to God. And no one is allowed to make oil following the same recipe. And if they do, they will be cut off from the people. Right? This oil, everything it touches, it makes holy. That's, that's a blessing from God, right? That's God saying, this is mine. It's a physical showing that those things belong to him and that they have his blessing, right? This oil is special not on its own. It's special because it's from God. And anything it touches, they belong to him which means the priesthood belongs to God, right? And as the oil is poured over them, everyone can see, everyone can smell that they belong to God. All right, and then Exodus 29, it says this about the priesthood of Aaron. It says, And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. So God in this moment is consecrating a priesthood that belongs to him forever. And this, this language of a priesthood 
is also found in 1 Peter 2, right? As Peter writes to the exiled Christians, he says this in verses 4 and 5, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And that that same language picks up in verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So this oil is a physical sign that God's, of God's blessing on his chosen people. And today, we're not going to pour oil on ourselves, but in and through Christ, we are that royal priesthood, right? Christ's blood has been poured out for us. We are holy to him. We are set apart for God, right? The blessing of the priesthood is continued today as we are his chosen people. And as part of that, he continues to desire that we dwell in unity. Let's, let's take a look at this uh, second simile. It says, It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. So unity is like the dew of Hermon. Um, Hermon is a mountain. Uh, it's mentioned in Deuteronomy a couple times because Israel uh, wins it. They possess it. They take possession of it. Um, so it's part of Israelite land. It's in the northern part of their kingdom. Um, and because of, of where this mountain is at and because of its height, um, it actually receives a lot of moisture. So when people talked about Mount Hermon, they pictured a mountain that was lush and green, right, and beautiful in that way. So this, again, is a picture of God's blessing coming down from on high, right? This beautiful mountain, Mount Hermon, it's, it's giving its due. Its due is coming down or being poured down onto Zion, which is the holy place of Israel, right? It's a picture of God's blessing from on high to the people of Israel, and, and here's the wonderful thing about do. It's, it's not reliant on us, right? We don't do anything to create do. When you went to bed last night, it was cool, right? And when we woke up this morning, it was there, whether we wanted it to be or not. And do is also nourishing and refreshing, right? It, it brings water to the plants of the earth so they can grow and be, be fruitful. This is a picture of God's blessing coming down on us, being poured on us with no work from us. And it's nourishing and refreshing, right? Unity is nourishing to our lives. It refreshes our minds and bodies. It is good and pleasant. It is given to us from God. And Psalm 133 ends like this, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life 
forevermore. Well, the key word that I noticed here is the word there, right? Because there is actually a place. So where is this there? There is Zion. Zion. And what is Zion? Zion is where God is present with his people, right? And, and in the Old Testament, that meant Jerusalem. <coughs> Zion is another name for Jerusalem, where the people gather to worship God. And as they recite or sing the psalm together, that's where they're at. They're at Zion, right? So their unity is most visible as they gather. And God has commanded a blessing, commanded a blessing for his people, life forevermore. Now, today, our unity is also most visible when we gather to worship God, just like we are this morning, right? No one's, no one driving by is confused about what we're doing here. We are gathered people of God, and He is present with us. (coughs) And for those of us who are dwelling in unity, God has commanded a blessing, life forevermore. And that's both the present and a future reality, right? God desires us to live long, fruitful, nourished lives. But he also has prepared a place for us in his Father's house. Life forevermore also points to an eternal reality. (coughs) But we, friends, we live in a present in the present, and it's not always easy, right? We live in a culture that is constantly trying to divide us. It's easy, I can point out politics, race, gender issues, right? Those seem to be the big ones now. But there we have TV shows, we have news that is intentionally made to be divisive. Um, Even the church has historically disagreed on everything from theology to music, to the paint on the walls, right? We just live in a divisive culture. And, and more importantly for us, in Lincoln, Nebraska, right now it's football season, right? So we have to do our yearly thing of deciding if we're going to keep or fire Scott Frost, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and, and we all know who's right about that one. I mean, depending on what side you're on, right? Now, this is not, like, this is, This is a human experience, right? Jesus experienced this in his time on earth. He experienced humanity with all its flaws and dissension, right? And he experienced it from the people closest to him, his 12 apostles, right? He lived with Judas, who betrayed him. He lived with Peter, who seemed to have all the answers, and yet somehow he didn't. He he dealt with James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and their pride. Right? Even after his death, he came back and dealt with Thomas, who doubted him. Right? But Christians, because Jesus came down from heaven and dwelt among us, we have a unity that is not of this world. We have a unity in Christ that is far more valuable, it's far more important. It supersedes all the disunity we have in our culture. Christ's suffering, his death, 
his resurrection, his ascension to his throne in heaven gives us a unity that cannot be bought or worked for. The price has already been paid, and his blessing is poured over us from on high. Our brotherhood and sisterhood is defined by what Christ has done for us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it this way in his book, Life Together. He writes, One is a brother to another only through Jesus Christ. I am a brother to another person through what Jesus Christ did for me and to me. The other person has become a brother to me through what Jesus Christ did to him. This fact that we are brethren only through Jesus Christ is of immeasurable significance. What determines our brotherhood is what that man is by reason of Christ. Our community in Christ consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. Now, brothers and sisters, if there's one thing you remember from this morning, I hope it's this. Like As we look around the room at each other, we are all here because of what Christ has done for us. That's it. There are surely things we disagree on, but all of those things pale in comparison to our unity in Christ. Now, I asked at the beginning of this morning the question, what causes you to not be in harmony with the people of God? And we have to see that our response to that, because of what we just read, has to be less important than our unity in Christ. And look, I stand here knowing that conflict and misunderstanding are also inevitable. And also we know it does not devalue or wipe away that reason for disunity, right? Rather, it gives us equal footing in both our need for Christ and the work he is able to do through us. The way you answer that question needs to be dealt with biblically in community, but we have to know that our unity in Christ comes first. We have differing opinions and understandings. We have conflict that needs to be worked through. That answer to the question, what causes you to not be in harmony with God's people? We're not, we're not just taking that and throwing it out, right? We, we want to, to deal with that. We want to be a part of working through that, but we have to do that being rooted in our identity in Christ first. Are you willing to let our unity in Christ stand as more important than disunity? And maybe, maybe a step further than that, would you, if you're in conflict, or if you've been sin, excuse me, maybe a step further would be thinking about, are you in conflict right now? Have you been sinned against by a brother or sister in Christ, right? Because there's a cost to living in disunity. We read about that in Galatians 5. It says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Right? This is a passage about conflict, and conflict is the opposite of unity. This is not how we want to live our lives. 
So if you are in conflict, there are directions given on how to pursue unity and reconciliation, and it's possible because of what Christ has done for each one of us, right? If you're living with division or conflict, maybe the words of Matthew 5 help give you some direction. It reads, So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. Right? Or maybe, maybe you need to follow the command found in Matthew 18, which says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now look, there is, there is a messiness to disagreement and disunity, but there is also a beauty in reconciliation. And I can say that having lived both sides of that coin. But here we have instructions from God on how to pursue unity for both those who have been sinned against, excuse me, those who have sinned against a brother or sister, and also those who have been sinned against. This morning I'm asking, are you willing to die to self and pursue reconciliation and unity? Or are you choosing to keep that inside of you and hold it against someone? Are you looking for the answers on your own? Outside of community, are you bringing that to brothers and sisters that you trust and who are willing to walk this with you? Here at Two Pillars, we're no different, right? Uh, We're here this morning because of our standing in Christ. We're trying to work towards unity, but we do that imperfectly. Uh, We have a mission statement that guides that work for us, though. It says, We exist to make, mature, and unleash missionary disciples who live with gospel faithfulness to the glory of God. And this mission statement does not make sense outside of first being united in Christ, right? We make disciples because we want to share what Christ has done for us. We mature as disciples because we want to grow in our depth of understanding the unplumbable depth of our God. We unleash missionary disciples who grasp the significance of the kingdom of God being for all his people. As Christians, as two pillars church, our unity comes in and through Christ. Uh, Let me leave you with a few application questions here. The first one is this. How would it look if your lack of harmony with the church paled in comparison with the immeasurable significance of Christ's salvation? Uh, Side note, I feel like this is a good time to mention that we post sermon slides with the sermon audio, so I know I wrote a long question. Don't have to write it down. You can go look it up later. It'll be on our website. Let me say that again now that I've distracted you. How would it look if your lack of harmony with the church paled in comparison with the immeasurable significance of Christ's salvation? If we had a proper 
attitude toward our disagreements. Secondly, do you have a conflict or sin that requires you to leave your gifts at the altar and pursue reconciliation? Maybe that's something you can do this morning. Thirdly, are we a beacon of unity in our community? Or maybe we could ask that this way, how can we be a beacon of unity in our community? Right? How can we show the city of Lincoln, our neighborhoods, the blessing of dwelling together in unity? <clears throat> I want to end with another quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together. And I'm doing that because this book, like if you're interested in reading any more about community, this is a great book to start with. It's also pretty decently short, so it's not um, overwhelming. But, but the other reality here is that Bonhoeffer didn't just write about unity. He lived that. He died that. If you don't know about Bonhoeffer, he was executed by the Nazis in a concentration camp during World War II. Right? He as he died, clearly understood his unity in and through Christ to the brothers and sisters he died for. He wrote this. Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is more or less than this. Whether it be a brief, single encounter or the daily fellowship of years, Christian community is only this. We belong to one another, we belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, you have a design for us, a wonderful design for us as humanity, as, as your holy people, Lord. You've designed us to dwell together, to live life on life, Lord, to, to live in unity, to, to work through and trust in you, to work through conflict and misunderstanding, Lord. Um, I pray that these words ring true for us this morning, that, that we understand that we are nothing, we belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ, Lord. We, we all come from that same place, Lord. I pray that we rest in that truth about us, Lord. I pray that we work for unity as a church body, Lord, as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we work to dwell together um, as you've called us to, Lord, and that, and that we just have grace for each other, Lord, knowing that um, we're going to do that imperfectly, Lord, but yet we have to see that there is a blessing from you in that, Lord. You've promised us life forevermore. Lord, we look to, to a time when you rule and our disunity, our conflict is wiped away, is washed away eternally by what Christ has done for us, Lord. Um, so I pray that, that we are able to see that picture this morning um, about Christ and about what you have for us, Lord. And I pray all this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. 
Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.